Hi, everybody. This is Pastor Matt, and thank you so much uh, for taking the time to listen to this recording of the Easter uh, message by Pastor Ed, where he looked at uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41, at Peter's sermon uh, there on the day of Pentecost. Uh, as you get started with this, I, I want to share a, a few verses from uh, that sermon. We're not going to read the whole thing, but if you'd like to stop this recording and take the time to read it yourself, uh, encourage you to do that. But I just wanted to share with you, starting in verse 22, uh, where Peter there speaking to the crowd says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And Peter goes on in verse 37 to say, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for... The promise, uh, not just for the generation that heard Peter's words, but for every generation since. Thank you that you still call us, that you seek us out. That the story doesn't simply end with Jesus' resurrection, but it goes on to include the redemption of our lives of this world. Lord, what great hope that we have because of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for that hope. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, church. And welcome to Easter Sunday here at OCEC. He is risen. Very good. That was perfect. Um, this is a different Easter, a different Resurrection Sunday than one that we've ever experienced in the past and hopefully unique uh, looking ahead, the ones that we'll experience together. But um, I am really excited, not just because we have the ability through technology to uh, have church together, but that we finally found a way to decorate the stage um, in such a way that uh, I would say shows on the outside how pretty I feel on the inside most of the time that I am teaching. So I was so excited to go crazy with the flowers because it's spring and because it's Easter today. Uh, the weather has gotten so much better and I am so happy. I think if this quarantine had happened when uh, it was cloudy and cold the whole time, I would have been, I would have lost it. But get, get ready for uh, several months of stories of gardening and plant metaphors and illustrations of water and things like that because I'm feeling very good now. Um, you know, the first time that I ever spoke about God, about God's word, uh, really, you, I wouldn't even say preach, but the first time that I ever had the responsibility of telling people about it was when I was in high school and I was given a chance to speak as a sophomore at the Bible club 
at school. Uh, now, the club was not supposed to be religious in nature. It was supposed to be like academic. And so the, the name of it was actually the Bible as Literature Club. Uh, and uh, we, I, I guess the idea was that we were spending our lunch times once a week studying the Bible simply as a form of literature and not for spiritual benefit, which is kind of funny because in all intents and pur- for all intents and purposes, it was like a youth group. Uh, and uh, instead of youth leaders, we had some teachers who let us use their classroom. And uh, I think it, we met in the chemistry lab. So I don't know why anybody would choose to give up their lunchtime in high school to hear uh, Eddie Grover, this sophomore who was extremely on fire for Jesus and very excited to talk about his new faith. But uh, the room was actually pretty full when I spoke. And um, so there I was in the chemistry lab at lunchtime, and I wanted to teach on grace. I wanted to talk to people about God's grace. And so I had this great idea. And what I did was I had my mom go and uh, buy a Happy Meal and bring it to me at school. And, uh, and then I began talking about God's grace. And I took, I went up to this girl, Beth, who was in the front row, and I took her sack lunch. And I uh, took it out of her hands. And I said, excuse me, Beth, let me have your lunch, please. And I took it and I threw it on the ground. I just threw it on the ground, and then I stepped on it. I crushed her lunch. It was so amazing and powerful. People were blown away. And then, as Beth started to get upset and confused, I said, but wait, Beth, because this is grace. And I pulled out, that's right, you guys guessed it, um, the Happy Meal that my mom had brought to school for me that was probably a couple hours old at this point. But I brought it out, and I said, this, everyone, this Happy Meal that is better than the lunch that she deserves is a free gift to her. Here you go, Beth. Right. So, unbelievable, right? Amazing. Now, I should have told Beth that I was going to do this. I probably, in, in, in you know, retrospect, should have done this with somebody who knew ahead of time because she was actually really mad that I threw her lunch on the ground and she actually got upset with me. And it also turns out that at that time that Beth was a vegetarian and she also really didn't like McDonald's. So it didn't quite work out the way that I had thought, but um, I then proceeded to talk about God's grace and how much it had changed my life and how excited I was to talk to anybody who would listen about it. Um, So that was like not only the first time I ever talked to people about God, it was also probably the first time, you know, now fast forward as a pastor, I think about this. It was the first time that I had this amazing idea for something that would be so incredible and would just blow people's minds that turned out to just be kind of confusing and awkward, which is basically most of what most pastors think of as this is gonna blow people's minds. Um, right now, as all the pastors in America are like live streaming and recording sermons, I, I can only imagine some of the ridiculous things that they're doing. I heard there's a church in town that's doing some kind of a newscast and it is a complete, it is a complete like just abomination of a church service. Anyway, we're looking this morning at Peter's first message. The first time that uh, the apostle Peter speaks about Jesus publicly to other people. This is the first sermon that is preached in the New Testament after Jesus' ministry. This is the first sermon of the early church. And it happens right when the apostles are filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit. I, 
I, the crazy thing about this is we, uh, we did not plan on going through Acts yet. We were actually going to go through another series on unity uh, right as the quarantine began. And so because of that, we, uh, we said, we'll hold off on that. We want to do that when we're physically together. We'll start our Acts series that we were going to start. And so we're doing this series kind of in a different order than we were going to. And, uh, and yet here we find ourselves. In fact, even I think last week, Matt was supposed to preach on all of chapter two, but we were talking about it saying that's, that's way too much to cover. So here we find ourselves. Ourselves, uh, in uh, in this passage on Resurrection Sunday, and it is so incredible the way that God works because here uh, I can't think of anything better to talk about on a I can't think of anything better to talk about on on Resurrection Sunday than uh, the actual first thing that uh, the apostles themselves talked about when given a chance after Jesus' resurrection. This is the first thing they got to tell people after meeting the resurrected Jesus. It's perfect. So uh, Peter, who is not this incredibly powerful, amazing speaker, has just been given this huge boost that I definitely did not get, which is uh, this. He and the rest of the, of the apostles have just been empowered, like Matt said last week, to speak all these different languages. And as they've done that, uh, it has completely captivated the attention of people, and people have said to them, uh, these guys must be drunk. Uh, a lot of other people have said, what is going on? Clearly, there's something happening here that's miraculous. So the stage has been set. People are paying attention. Imagine that you are at like the Easter service at the Vatican. Uh, maybe not this year, but other years. If you know anything about the Vatican here, I'll put a picture of this up. So this is uh, the courtyard of St. Peter's uh, Basilica uh, Cathedral. This is where the Vatican leads the Easter service or where the Pope leads the Easter service uh, at the Vatican each year. Uh, look at these people, the people that come to the Vatican, to this part of Rome, uh, just to be there for this holy day at what is the holiest site. Uh, now imagine having the opportunity to be empowered in such a way that everyone there turns around and looks at you and you're now going to speak. Now imagine that whatever it is that you say next, everyone is going to listen to. I mean, what would that be, right? That's crazy. We read here in verse 15, uh, the first thing he says is simple, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. This is awesome because he says to them, we're not drunk. And what's his reason? It's brilliant. He says, it's only the third hour of the day. Basically translated to mean, listen, if we were drunk, uh, we would have had to get up at 6 a.m. to get drunk by 9. How many drunks do you know who are up at 9, much less who get up at 6 in order to be drunk by 9 a.m.? And that's when everybody goes, okay, you're right. I know some drunks. That's not, that's not how it works at all. That's literally what Peter's saying. So he goes on after establishing that they're not a bunch of drunks, and he says this in verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You know, every few years, there are these religious leaders that come on the scene, and they will have these sort of doomsday predictions, and they'll say, I know, I've done the calculations, I'm in on some special information, and I know when the world is going to end. It's going to end on this day, at this time, and so keep that in mind, everybody, and follow me. And people will follow them, and they'll listen, 
Every, every, uh, every year, it seems, every couple of years, there is a leader who rises up, not even a religious one, but a leader who is charismatic and who has the ability to somehow give a voice to something that people are feeling and that they're uneasy about. And, and this person resonates with people, and so they become uh, hugely popular. And yet over time, what happens to the majority of these people is they fade back into obscurity because eventually the date comes and the world doesn't end. And what happens to the doomsday prophet? They just sort of float away saying, I did the math wrong or it's going to happen again or you'll all see, but we don't hear about him anymore, right? Uh, you hear about the, 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 or there are leaders of cults who just commit suicide with their cult members and the world didn't end, and now they're gone, and we don't hear anything about them anymore. Uh, you hear about uh, the, the same leaders that rise up that are such a big deal, most of the time end up proving themselves to be just like every other leader that came along, probably in it for themselves. They actually weren't that different from everybody else. They actually weren't that revolutionary. Turns out they just kind of struck a chord with some of us right now, and they fade off into the background out of the limelight, out of the center of our minds and our hearts. So the people here in Jerusalem, Jesus is like one of these leaders. He's, he's uh, one of those men who like predicted the end of the world and it didn't come. He's this disgraced and forgotten rabbi. He's yet another false messiah in a long line of false messiahs who were killed ultimately or who were just forgotten about because they faded into obscurity. Peter is making it clear, though, in this first verse here of, of his sermon, really, he's saying God um, foreknew that this would happen. This was part of God's plan. He said Jesus is delivered up according to his definite plan, his, his foreknowledge. And what Peter is saying is this. He's saying first and foremost, you must know that God is in control. That God is one with a plan. The apostles know that asking these Jews to believe in Jesus is asking a lot. Not because it's unbelievable, not because it's untrue, not because it's impossible, not even because it's not a logical thing, but because of the way that they thought that God worked, because of what they expected God to do was completely different than ultimately the way he worked. The way they expected God to be was so different from the way God turns out to actually be that it was so difficult for them to actually see him and what was going on. Why? Because the savior of the world wasn't gonna be just some general who led them into battle. Uh, because God didn't ultimately just care about one nation of people being the best and, and saving them. He ultimately cared about saving all people. There were so many ways in which these, these, these Jewish people in this faith at the time expected God to work and act and look. And when he didn't act that way, work that way, do those things, or ultimately save them in the way they wanted to be saved, they needed more proof. They needed evidence to see 
through all of their misconceptions and go, okay, how do I really know that God is a part of this? And when Jesus came and he was ultimately persecuted and died, it was hard for them to believe this. There was so much going against the possibility of them believing in Jesus as this Messiah because his existence, his message challenged this establishment of the Jewish faith. And they didn't want it to be challenged. This was not a time when people wanted to see the establishments they were a part of upended. So at the time, for the people listening to Peter's sermon and seeing the ministry of Jesus, the establishment, the man, the people that are oppressing them is Rome. They are under Roman occupation. The Jews, the, the, the religious group that they're a part of, is the only group of people that they actually feel like they can be themselves with. And I mean, we all know this, right? If you ever want to be close with someone, identify a common enemy, right? Maybe like a virus or something, uh, and that will quickly put you on the same side as everybody else. Rome was the enemy. Their Jewish faith, this temple, this place that they were when Peter was speaking, this was where they found comfort. This was where they found identity. This was where they found their salvation. And so for Jesus to come and, and, and for him to attack the way that they were explaining God, teaching who God was to people, and ultimately say the way that you're all trying to save yourself is not going to lead you to God. In fact, it'll lead you away from it. This was such a hard thing for them to hear because it meant questioning and doubting this very religious institution that they had been spending, most of them had spent their lives in. Everything in them wanted to reject this message. For Peter, preaching this is like me getting up today and saying, everybody, Easter is an abomination, right? Hopefully that's the point at which like Matt would take me and pull me aside and say, hey Ed, that's fine that you feel that way. Maybe don't do it on Easter Sunday. You know, maybe wait uh, a couple months, wait till Easter crazes died down, all the peeps are gone on clearance, and then you can say all your thoughts about Easter that's gonna make everyone mad, right? Peter is showing up at the moment when people are feeling the most connected to their Jewish leaders and faith. And he is saying to them, that the way that they're going about seeking God is not working, that it's wrong, and that Jesus was the Messiah. This does not make sense to them. This is hard for them to believe. And so his first point to them is, you have to understand that God is in control. That even when it looks like things don't make sense, God is in control. And ultimately what happened is that Peter had an overwhelming amount of evidence. He could point to their eyewitness account of seeing Jesus. He could point to the scripture showing how it all connected. He could point to the miracle of what was happening right then and there. He could say, look at what's going on with these languages we're speaking. God gave him the ability to say, here is your proof. God is in this. So if you're going to listen to me now, then know this, that even though what happened with Jesus didn't make sense to you, God is in control because God has a plan. There are so many who struggle to believe because the idea that God is in control makes no sense. 
because they look at things in this world and say, if that's true, if God's really in control, then why on earth would he let that happen? Because I can't see how you can do what he calls you to do and let that thing happen. I mean, take us here for existence, for, for, for example, right? Take, take this time of the church, for example. If God has called the church to be, listen, I, this, this last, these last few weeks, I, you know, as, as more and more of this time has gone on, I felt more and more disconnected. And, and, and this last week, I was, as I would come home from work and Ellie would say, you know, how's it going? I, I would say the same thing every day. I'd say, it's just so weird. It's just so weird. It's so weird. That's all I could say. Because this, I, I, I'd say this isn't church. What we're doing isn't church. And as much as, you know, we want to be optimistic as leaders and we want to be able to say, you know, look, everybody, we can still have church together. We'll just beam it to your homes and we can, we can have a message and we can have worship and kind of special music and we can fill you in and keep you connected and, and reach out to you and try to have community over Zoom and things like that. With all these technological things we can do, the truth is the church is, biblically speaking, the gathering physically of God's people. And that's the one thing that we can't do right now. And so God calls us to gather together, to worship him together. Church is not a teaching time. The church is not a singing time alone by yourself. Church is not just a time of contemplation. Church is where we come together and we do those things together. So how is it then that God says, do not give up meeting together? This is the church, you gathering, and then allows us to be in a situation where we cannot do that. Why, God? If you're in control, why? Peter's response, God has a plan. God knew this would happen long ago. God knows what he's doing. God has a perfect plan and he foreknew these things. It is no different for those of us who say, how, if you wanted this person that I love to follow you and serve you, why did you take them away and why did they die? How in the world does that make sense, God? God is in control. God has a plan. How could you allow the relationship with my family to fall apart to such a degree that we can't even speak anymore, that we, uh, that we, that things have gotten so unhealthy and toxic and bad. Uh, God, why does that, how does that, you know, help us to do what you want us to do? Help me be the kind of Christian you want me to be. If you want me to serve you in all these ways, I can think of a million ways that I can do it. So why do I not, why am I not able to serve you in any of the ways I want? Why, why am I sick? Why am I not physically able to do the things that I am passionate about doing? Why, God? Why on earth? How does that make any sense? Peter is saying something to give these people an explanation of, 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 of how they can see what's really going on, and it is this. God is in control. Because do you know what these people are thinking? They're thinking, okay, one of two possibilities. One, he is the Messiah. Fine. And that means that our God is not nearly as impressive and powerful as our ancestors made him out to be. I mean, we weren't in Egypt. We weren't crossing the Red Sea. We didn't see this Goliath guy. We didn't deal with any of that stuff personally. We've been hearing about it for generations. Sure, fine, okay, we trust you. But honestly, now what? So the Messiah comes and it's that easy to just kill him and then it's over? That doesn't sound like a very impressive God. Or Jesus wasn't the Messiah. 
and we wait because we know when that Messiah comes, he's going to squash everybody like a bug and nobody's going to mess with him. Both of these are based on a misunderstanding of what God cares about, of how God works, of who God is. And Peter says to them, he is in control and he knows. But he goes on and he says something else to them. He begins in the second half of verse 23 and he says, you crucified and killed him. And he then goes on to say, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So somehow, now this is really crazy. Somehow, according to Peter, God can be in control of things. And yet we are still responsible for what happens. I mean, some of us have no difficulty believing that God's in control of things. But if that's the case, then it's not my fault what's happening, right? I mean, God's the one in control, right? It's not me. He's like the guy pulling the strings or whatever. Whereas there are those who, who feel like maybe responsibility is a very real thing on our part, but that means that God has no hand in the things that are going on. Peter says, not only does God foreknow what's going on, not only did he direct these things to happen, but you're still responsible for the fact that when his son, when the Messiah came, you crucified and killed him and delivered him over into the hands of lawless men. There are some who have no problem of being convicted of guilt for their actions. There are some who do not need anyone to convince them that they've done things that are wrong. And then there are some of us who just cannot wrap our minds around how all of what we're seeing and experiencing in the world is somehow tied to our own hearts in some way. Do you know one of the most incredible things about God is that he loves us and also tells us what we're doing wrong. He loves you so much and he also will tell you when you're responsible for something that's wrong. I mean, there are plenty of people who can point out to me the things that I do wrong. But I don't know how much those people really care about me and love me. In fact, the less you care about and love a person, the easier it is to see all their flaws and point those things out. I mean, we all know what it's like to be in a situation with a friend. I think it kind of makes us feel ashamed that this happens because it makes us feel sort of weak. But we know what it's like to be in a relationship with a friend where uh, we know they're doing something wrong. We know that they're causing damage or hurt or something. And yet, because we care about the friendship, we're like, I don't really think that I should say anything to them about it. I don't really think they need, they just need me to support them. They just need me to understand. They just need me to accept them no matter what's going on, right? And why do we do that? We do it for a very simple reason, because we know that there's a very good chance that telling somebody when they're wrong, pointing out to somebody how they're responsible for some of the destruction that's going on, doing that with a person in a relationship that we care about, we know there's a possibility that that person's gonna say, you know what, I don't wanna be around you anymore. It is so hard to really love somebody and to be honest with that person when they're wrong. I mean, it really is in, in like a loving way. And what, the most incredible thing about God is that he can do that. Is that he loves us 
And he says, you blew it. And this is what Peter says. And do you know why we can hear it from him? It's because of what he says after this. Because the re- the, there's some of us, we, just, we, we, we really, really struggle with this idea of, oh, it's my fault. I'm the one who's done something wrong. I'm the one that needs to be sorry. I'm the one that's responsible, right? But, but, but uh, there, one of the reasons that's so hard is because it feels so hopeless, right? So, so what if that's true, right? Like I need one more reason to feel hopeless about myself, to be hopeless about the world around me, right? But he goes on, and what does he say? He says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why does he say that? Because our sin leads to death. And so to own when I've done something wrong, to own when the death that is happening is my fault. To know, to own when the destruction is my fault, is something that is, that is because of me, is to own the consequence of that thing. And for many of us, it is to be defeated by that thing. But what he says is he says, here's why you guys can accept responsibility for what you've done. Because Jesus has already conquered death. And so the death that would have come to you because of these things, I mean, you guys killed him. You guys deserve death. You guys deserve no chance, no hope, no message of grace. I shouldn't even be here talking to you right now, just like God never should have come after you in the desert and never should have opened the Red Sea and never should have delivered you and never should have given Abraham children and never should have created a nation in the first place and never should have given Noah the way to build the ark. Those things are not things that you deserve because sin leads to death. And if there's any part of us that really knows that, then the last thing that we can do is accept responsibility when there's sin because all it means is death. But what he says is Christ was crucified, but he couldn't be held by death. It was, it was the, the binds of death were loosed, which means you guys can own this. You can, you can, you can let it out. You can, you can admit it and confess it. Why? Because it isn't going to bring you death. Because you can still have life because of what Jesus did. So he says to them, he says, God is in control. And he says, but you are responsible for the things that have happened. The enemy isn't Rome. The enemy isn't the nation further beyond Rome. The enemy isn't the Syrians, the Babylonians. The enemy isn't Goliath. And the enemy isn't any of the people that you want to believe the enemy is. He says, the enemy is you. Because when the Messiah came, you're the ones that killed him. But you can still have life. So they respond. We read in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thousands of people, it says, are cut to the heart and they're, and they're ready to respond. So what do they do? Right? What, 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 what would they want to do? Well, that's easy, right? All right, Peter, we feel bad. Tell us what to do. We're ready. Give us the new rules. We'll write them all down. We'll do an even better job than last time. It sounds like what you're saying is we haven't done a great job of following the rules, so we will do a better job of following the rules we promised. Give us new worship, new way to worship. We'll do it. New words, new songs, new 
rituals, traditions, whatever it is, that's fine. We blew that. We'll, we'll try something new. We're open to anything, right? Sacrifice. We'll sacrifice more stuff, man. We will kill so many animals. It's not even funny. There's gonna be blood in the streets, right? We will just, whatever we need to do to, to, to take away this feeling of like regret and, and of guilt that we're feeling about what you're saying about what we've done in the Messiah. I feel terrible. Tell me what to do. Anything that I can do to kind of assuage this guilt that I feel that I have. His conscience, my heart, but his response is not at all what people are usually prepared for. His response is not the response that most people expect. He goes on after that, and he simply says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He says, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. We're not really set up to expect forgiveness when we feel convicted, The idea of forgiveness is a totally foreign thing to most of us. I mean, if you really feel as though you're responsible for something and you know that you have a part to play in the destruction that is going on, then then you don't immediately think, oh, good, I can be forgiven. You're ready to pay for what you did. You're ready to to just do anything that it takes. And, And his response is to repent. And he says, if you do this thing called repenting, you really will be forgiven. And you say, but Ed, uh, you know, and I say, no, don't interrupt me. But you say, but Ed, uh, repenting is, is all those things, right? I mean, isn't that what it means to repent, right? You write down the new rules and you worship even better and you sacrifice even more things in your life and you, you just feel terrible and you grovel and you beg and you plead and then eventually God goes, okay, fine, okay, fine. You can feel less bad about yourself for a while until I make you feel bad again. No, that's not actually what repentance is. If you look at the word repentance here, and we're going to see it a lot as we start to see this gospel that's preached throughout Acts, it's this word metaneo, and it means conversion. Repentance means conversion. The call for repentance on the part of a man is a call for him to ultimately convert who he is. It's like what Jesus is talking about when he tells Nicodemus to be born again. He's saying you have to completely change from the inside out if you really want to move past this. You have to be converted, you have to be born again, you have to turn back, and and again, we think of repentance as turning away from sin, repentance is turning back to God. The the biblical Old Testament definition of repentance that Peter's talking about is this, it is to return to your covenant, therefore your dependence on God. They say, Peter, what must we do? And he says, simple, turn back to God and depend on him again. This is one of the hardest things for us to hear because just when we're at this point where we feel convicted, we recognize that God is in control, there is sin in our lives, we say, God, I, what can I do to make this situation better? There, there's this author that I've, I've, that said it so well. He says, the only time that you are further from God, the only time we are further from God than when we sin is when we're actually in the process of trying to fix our own sin. This is what we're ready to do. But why had the Jewish people at this point screwed things up so badly for themselves? Because they didn't like the idea of depending on God. They liked the idea of depending on themselves. He goes back and just in case they're not really getting it, we read this in verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
Whenever you see this term generation used in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it means the same thing. It's, it's, it's a correction and it's always directed at the fact that sin is something that we do as a group. And what I mean by that is I mean my sin not only messes up my life, but it tells you, my friend, hey, that thing Ed's doing is okay, so I can do that thing too, right? And if enough people around me do that thing, then it's a matter of saying or believe that thing or, or fear that thing, right? Then uh, that begins to be this entire group where the culture becomes one in which the definition of what is wrong, the definition of what is not to trust God, not to depend on God, has changed. We've changed it without even trying. And he calls that a crooked generation. Remember, from James and from Proverbs, wisdom is a straight line. Wisdom is this straight line that takes you from where you were to where you're going in the most simple and direct way possible. To be crooked is to foolishly sort of wander. And this happens all the time to people, but it doesn't just happen to people, it happens to entire generations. It's this, this concept of, um, of, of we're, we're on a straight path and then we all as a group kind of begin to wander. And, and it's so very hard to see what it could be that's moving us in that direction when all of us are doing it. So, so what he's saying to them is he's saying, you need to cut your ties with the generation that has defined you and you need to choose to let a relationship with God define you. I mean, is that something that we can say that we'd be willing to do today? I mean, would I be willing to cut the ties that I have with my own uh, generation, with my own people, with those that I associate with, that I'm like, and choose instead to let a relationship with God define me more than that group. What he says at the end is really important, and it's honestly probably the part of this that we just blow right past the most, and we're gonna run into this a lot in Acts, so get ready. He talks about what you get if you do these things. What Peter says and what he points back to in Joel is a prophecy that says in these days that will come, when this Messiah comes, the Spirit will be poured out. The idea of pouring it out is like you can't really, you know, it's like, I mean, you know, my, my kids get up. Uh, it, it's like my son. It's like watching my son pour a glass of milk. It's like uh, the most terrifying thing in the world to me is watching my son pour a glass of milk because, like, I will see him just get this huge, like, thing out and like throw it on the counter pull the top off and then I see this little glass you know and he's like he's got it leaned on the glass like I mean if the glass just tips in any way it's just like it's it's I'm like ready to see all the milk go everywhere and and I'm like yelling at him and and, and, and because because when he starts pouring something, it's literally going to go everywhere, right? I mean, it needs to be outside. That's the only way that it can really happen, right? I mean, this is the kind of pouring that he's talking about. He's saying the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out and it's going to land on all these people and it is not going to matter if it's a man or a woman or a slave or a free person or, or, or a master. Uh, the Holy Spirit can fill and empower anyone. And the number one thing that we run into with the Holy Spirit is this. We don't think he's that big of a deal. He's like clearly 
the third and youngest and most forgotten about child in a family of three kids, right? The Holy Spirit's like, hey, we were really into the God part when we got to that. We really are getting into this Jesus part, but the Holy Spirit, okay, fine. I'll eventually I'll be into him, right? Uh, and that's kind of how we treat it. I, I mean, and, 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 and Acts is filled with, uh, or, or, or Jesus promises to the disciples. He says to them, you know, the Holy Spirit is going to be even greater for you in this than me, which is totally crazy. But we still look at the Holy Spirit, we hear about that, and we're like, you know, we kind of look at the Holy Spirit as almost like a, almost like a gift that, that you get at Christmas time or your birthday that is like the useful gift, right? Everybody loves that, right? Uh, you know, let's say you want, you know, say you want these shoes uh, for, for Christmas, and uh, you tell your parents you know about them, and you show them the picture, and you, you show them how awesome they are, and you tell them why you want them so bad, you say, man, I'm just finding myself in this place in my life where uh, I'm running into so many problems that would be solved if I could just adjust the pressure of my shoes for every situation. So if I just had these shoes that I could pump up and I could just really cushion my foot in a customized sort of way, I'd be ready to tackle anything in the world that would help me be a better person. Mom and dad, if you love me, buy me these shoes, right? Christmas day comes, this is what you get. Now, son, listen, okay, these are a very, we did the research, consumer reports, read the stuff online. This shoe is actually much more highly rated uh, for a comfortable walking experience. This is going to last you twice as long. This is going to be way more useful for you. I mean, just reading the different uses, right? Uh, it's, like, it's like trying to buy, uh, it's, like, it's like when I was talking to my dad about, about buying a laptop. He needed a laptop, and I'm, and I'm trying to like talking to him about buying these computers. He's like, I don't need a computer that can do all that stuff. I just need this computer that does almost nothing, that basically could also like, you know, uh, substitute as a doorstop of some kind, right? Because that's much more useful. It's much more reasonable, right? I'm like, yeah, but you know, like you're not gonna enjoy having the computer, right? I mean, when, you know, you ask, for, you ask for a gift and then you get something that is better, right? because it's so useful, right? And it's gonna help you in your life so much. I'm, this is totally serious. One year for Christmas, I asked for a bike helmet. I was a very reasonable young man. I was very safety conscious. You know, asked for a bike helmet. Um, no, it's because I was like so clumsy. Um, and this was the helmet I wanted, okay? And this, no joke, is what my dad got me. And then on top of that, he, uh, he got an uh, a extra strap for the chin. No, no, no. He got like a big piece of leather and like foam and hot glued it to the chin so that the strap would be bigger and more comfortable. And it was important to him that no matter what happened, this helmet didn't fall off of my head. Uh, this was like the Holy Spirit present to me. Why? Because the promise of the usefulness and, and the things and that it can help you do are so great, but at the end of the day, it's like, listen, I wanted something else that was much more exciting, and I got this. Now, why do I say that, right? I mean, that's, that's almost blasphemy, right? To say, to say that we would have such a low view of God himself, and yet uh, there is more in the Bible pointing to how powerful and amazing the gift of the Holy Spirit is for us. And yet, uh, we still really don't see it as that great of a thing. In fact, we call the Holy Spirit it instead of him, right? Because it's more of kind of an object than actual God himself.
It's very simple to understand what it looks like to move forward in this kind of a faith. The Holy Spirit now dwells in you. All you must do is seek to cultivate a relationship with God. Do this and the rest will fall into place in your life. This is not about trying harder and being better and knowing more, sacrificing and giving up more, enduring more pain. This is about seeking to cultivate a relationship with God. Do this and the rest of the things that need to matter will fall into place in your life. Why? Because you will have the Holy Spirit. We think of Christianity as pushing a rock up a hill. We think that just keep going, keep going. It's really hard, but I can do it. And if I ever just step out of the way, the whole thing's gonna roll down. Christianity is the exact opposite. It is a rock falling down a hill and we just have to stop getting in the way of it because we need to take control. When I was learning how to snowboard, um, I didn't like the fact that all you had to do was turn sideways and you could shoot down the mountain. It was very scary to me. And so I was constantly stopping myself, falling down on my butt, slowing down on every chance I got. And eventually I would just do this thing where you go sort of uh, perpendicular to the, to, the, to the slope and you just like skid down all the way down the mountain. Why? Because it felt like I was in control and I was really afraid of what it would feel like to just go fast and be out of control. That fear of not being in control is what had driven the Jewish people to the place that they're in. And it's what we deal with still. And the Holy Spirit, we can't be living in the power of this Holy Spirit that we're given while also being in control. You know what's easier than the Holy Spirit? You know what's easier than that kind of control? Religion. Religion is predictable. Religion, uh, if, enough, enough, if enough people have a hard time repenting of something uh, then, uh, and that thing's causing them death, then we just decide that those things aren't really death. They're life. That's how religion works. It's kind of great like that. We can all get together and say, hey, what do you think? Let's change this one. Okay. Peter has... Peter has just spent time with the resurrected Jesus himself. He, and now that the Holy Spirit has given him the power to say whatever he wants and to be heard by these people, I can't help but wonder how much of this message that Peter's giving us, his first sermon, is him simply saying, if only I had known, or, or maybe it would be better to say, if only I had really believed this before. Because when we look at what he says to these Jewish people here, of which he is one, his first sermon to them, his message to them, is very simple. And it seems like it is a message of, guys, if only I had really believed these things. If only I had really believed that God is in control, that I wouldn't have doubted and feared all those times that following Jesus took a turn that was scary. That when Jesus told me that he had to suffer and die, I wouldn't have, had to, I wouldn't have been rebuked by him for saying, no, that can't happen. That I, that, that I wouldn't have denied him, that I wouldn't have been so afraid. I mean, so much of what Peter would deal with is just fear and struggling to believe that God really is in control. I can't help but think that he's saying, if I had only really believed that, that, that if I am really responsible for the choices that I've made, the damage that many of those things have caused, that, that, that if I only had really believed that I don't need to try even harder, I need to actually just try depending on God 
a little bit. I need to actually stop uh, turning to myself and turning to God instead. If only I had believed that the Holy Spirit really is better than you think he is. This message from Peter is ultimately a message of hope. It's a message of hope in how life can be because of the resurrection. How do you respond to something like this when Jesus hasn't conquered death? When he hasn't defeated the absolute scariest thing that we will ever encounter? We're in this place right now as a people, as, as, a, as, as an entire uh, planet, we're in this place of being more aware of the fear that we have of death collectively than maybe we have been before. And as we're all thinking about how much we don't want to die and how much we want to help others not die and how much we're willing to go to the extreme lengths so that we can be healthier and that people can live and not get sick and, and suffer, uh, we are aware of the fact that death is, it seems, the ultimate enemy, that even though we know that it is a part of life and that it is not something that we can escape, we still fear it so much. Today is the day. Today is the day that we get to celebrate that, that Christ actually defeated death, that he actually overcame death and that through that we can have hope. It is because of this that Peter's sermon is such good news. It's because of this that Peter wanted to tell his own brothers and sisters in the faith about their sin, about their part. Not because he hated them, not because he wanted to to burden them, not because he wanted to beat them down, but because he knew how hard it was for them to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It doesn't mean that he agrees with them. It doesn't mean that Uh, He thinks they had good reasons, but he understands. It is hard for these people to make these connections. And I know that they can have life. They can have new life through resurrection. Why? Because he's risen. Let's pray. Father, God, Peter was not a gifted speaker. Peter was not an eloquent man. Peter was not perfect. Peter was like all of us. But because you empowered him with your Holy Spirit, God, you used him, a regular person, to change the lives of thousands of people. God, for many of us, we struggle to make the connections. We do. Many of us struggle to see how it makes sense that you could be a God who is in control. And in a, while we live in this world full of so much pain and suffering, it, it is hard for us to understand how uh, the Messiah, the Savior, could look so much the way Jesus looked. It is hard for us to accept and to understand and to accept responsibility for our part in what happens in this world, Lord. It is, it is hard for so many of us to step back from our own generation and to ask if we would be willing to cut ties, not from those relationships or from those people, God, but from the loyalties that we have to those ways of thinking if they ever get in the way of you 
God, we are here today celebrating you. We are here today because of what you have done on the cross. Lord, it is in your name that we pray. Amen.